Welcome to Tom Rhodes Radio. Thanks for listening. And greetings from my living room in Los Angeles. I just got back yesterday from Northern California. Uh, I got really lucky. I bought a ton of books. I was in Sacramento two weeks ago. So I flew to San Francisco, rented a car, drove to Sacramento. I love Sacramento. Sacramento is uh, the Perth, Australia of the United States. One of the most livable places in the world, I think. Um, If you're somewhere and you hate your life and you're looking for a sunny, happy place to relocate to, uh, let me suggest Sacramento. Lovely place. Um, It's so much more than the last place to pee and get gas before Lake Tahoe. Uh, Then after Sacramento... I had a gig in Arcata, and as I've mentioned many times before on this podcast and others, Eureka, California, right next to Arcata, has tons of great used bookstores. And Arcata has got great bookstores. There's uh, Northtown Books, where my friend Jay Herzog works. A guy grew up with me in Florida, and he lives in Arcata. So I bought like $100 worth of books, a lot of books in Arcata, and then I did the gig. What kind of books did you buy? Uh, What did I get? I got, um, I I got that Alain Dubouton, uh, Art is Therapy. Alain Dubouton. Alain Dubouton. (laughs) And I got uh, Rumi, Laughter is Delicious. How come you love Rumi so much? I love Rumi. Rumi, um, because uh, he's... He has spiritual sensuality and humor, and um, he's, you know, like a Persian Sufi mystic. So he's a funny, he's a funny poet. He's funny, he's uh, sensual, he's, uh, he's about food. Rumi wrote about everything. The guy's yeah. really, really fantastic. Um, it's, it's too bad um, Persia didn't embrace more of his writings. But is, is he the guy who says something like, uh, your la 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 is my magic prayer carpet, something like that? No, that was um, Hafiz well, was said his book, that, that book, uh, God is Laughing, I think it's called. There's a, a poem in there where he says, I want to make you my prayer carpet. I want to make, make your body my prayer carpet, something like <laughs> that's, that. That's the soft, uh, that's the... Uh, the horny talk in the Middle East. <laughs> hey, in the 1300s, that was pretty hot, you know. They, they, you get stoned to death. It's a pickup line. You get stoned to death today for saying that. Uh, I got this Mark Twain uh, war prayer. I've never seen it. I, I wish I'd have had the books um, if I'd have known you were going to ask me about it. Um, yeah, I got a lot of good stuff. And then in San Francisco, I spent... Uh, $100 at City Lights Books. There's a Light, Lightning Hopkins book, uh, like a biography I've never seen before. Uh, I got a book uh, of Kurt Vonnegut's last interview and a book called I'm Special. Is that what it's called? Hello, I'm Special, about how uh, individuality is dead. Oh, that's interesting. And oh, how everyone is a conformist in their individuality with the hipster beards and the, the mustaches. Oh, I love with that. The, Who yeah. says that? Uh, let me grab the book real quick. Cool. 
Conformist. How individuality became the new conformity. Hello, I'm special by Hal Needsviecki. It's a City Lights book. That's a Can I see you? Real City Lights kind of book. Oh, and I got this um, Kurt Vonnegut biography called And So It Goes. And then I did the KGO radio with my friend Chip Franklin, this guy. He was a comedian from D.C. I worked with him when I was really young. And he's on the radio on KGO. And uh, I did his program. And then I did the sports talk with Rick Tittle, another AM station. And they let me go into their prize closet. Oh, there's a few more books from Arcata. The Chanel biography, Cary Grant biography. So anyway, this... Um, AM sports radio talk show that I got to do. They let me go into their prize closet and pick out all these books. I got a book on Evil Knievel. I got Neil Young's, uh, this book he wrote about cars. I got a biography on Thurman Munson, who was this badass catcher for the New York Yankees in the 70s. I got a Brooks Robinson biography. He was third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles. And then I got a book called Hail to the Redskins about my Washington Redskins. And then I found this one called Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. It's a penguin book. It looks fantastic. A, a path-breaking neuroscientist reveals how our social instincts turn me into us, but turn us against them. And what we can do about it. That seems like a nice little uh, intellectual read. After I read, hello, I'm special, and start judging people, I'll read this book, and then that'll bring me back to loving everybody, right? <laughs> it's a good balance. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the antidote. So um, you got your 50-pound limit for the checked bag on the airplane. Mm -hmm. So I stuffed my bag full of these books because, you know, uh, I can't carry, you know, 40 pounds of books or whatever. And Delta Airlines bumped me up to first class. Oh, my God, because you can get 35 you, pounds. You, because something. in first class, you get 70 pounds. So my bag was actually 63 pounds. So had I not been bumped up to first class, I would have had to pay the fine. But I got lucky. All right, that's 35 kilos. Oh, it's 70 pounds. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's so funny that we, we, because we traveled so much together that the, the pounds on the, on the baggage, it's like we talk about like gold or something, you know, because it's so precious yeah. for us. Well, you remember when we were living out of the suitcases, traveling yeah. constantly with no home, we were, you know, our bags were filled with everything and we were constantly sweating out the... And it was like, okay, I'll carry those books in my carry-on. Yes. And then, I'll, you know, or, or you're like two pounds over or I'm like five pounds over. Because we don't have a weighing scale when we travel. And there's no Publix because in the United States you can, every Publix has a scale. Oh, yeah, so, Publix supermarket in Florida. Yeah, so we used to scale our bags over there. But while we're traveling, we never ever had a scale with us. So it was always kind of, uh, uh, you know, going for luck when we went to the airport to weigh our suitcases. Yeah. It was I, an adventure because we couldn't, you know, we don't have, we didn't have a house. So if it was too full, we had, we had to just throw it away or something. Yeah. We threw away a lot of stuff to 
keep it down. But I so public supermarket is only in Atlanta, Georgia, and then all over Florida. Mm-hmm. That's why I like to call Florida Publix Kingdom. Um, it's funny the times you and I we didn't know about our luggage, and like I would pull up like in a rent a car in front of Publix, and then we'd take the suitcases into the entrance where their big scale is. Yes. Just so we went to Publix just to weigh our luggage. Yes, for f- <laughs> for seven years, and instead of just buying a weighing scale for his mom, which is what twenty bucks or something, <laughs> we just took that trip every time to to Publix just to weigh our bags. <laughs> that was pretty cool. So I had this. I had a really nice thing happen to me in San Francisco last week. I mean, it's always great being back in San Francisco. I mean, that's my spiritual home, Northern California. And um, I saw Natalie, my, you know, uh, first big love story. And uh, and she came to the show with her husband and her now 18-year-old son. Oh, my God. He's 18 years? Yeah. I think I may have changed his life. I think, uh, I think he probably, after seeing the show, probably wants to be a comedian now. Because he's, like, he's, he's, he's about to go to college. He's trying to decide what he wants to do in his life. He like you know, be like a sports agent. He was thinking about something. Sports agent. Yeah, he like he loves soccer, so he wants to like maybe represent. But but so it was great to see you know my old neighborhood where I lived in San Francisco on Alamo Square Park. The city has changed a lot. You know all these millennial hipsters, uh, and, and then there's there's more homeless people than I've ever seen there. There I mean, there there has always been a homeless problem in San Francisco, but. They kind of were confined to Union Square and uh, the Tenderloin area. But now it's like they're all over. And, um, you know, um, you often might see a human being taking a poop in an alley or somewhere. It's just like, it's just really interesting that there's so much wealth and youth and vibrant commerce happening there. And then these... Homeless neglect. People, homeless people have been yeah. neglected and forgotten. Yeah, because know? that's a city too. That's society. It, you know, that's part of of a city. Yeah, and then some young tech kid wrote a, a thing in the Guardian last week about how the homeless he he was he, how the the homeless people were ruining his San Francisco experience. You know what? I mean, and that's so. There's there's a little there's kind of a, a callousness to some of these new arrivals in San Francisco because, you know, some of these uh, rich, young, millennial, uh, techie hipsters, uh, you know, they're taking photos of the homeless people and tweeting it to the mayor saying, you know, this is bumming me out, man. Can you do something about this? (laughs) That's not true. That's your (laughs) joke. (laughs) Well, and also, but, you know, not everyone is like a a mindless person. The, The great thing is how international the city is. Every night when I would ask if there's someone from a different country, you know, I had like 20 different responses every night. Uh, Morocco and Kazakhstan and every place you could think of. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting what's happening there, uh, aside from the sad uh, homeless people who are being forgotten. So on a happier note, I had a really nice thing happen to me. Uh, this guy, this filmmaker... Uh, contacted me about being in his short, I'm sorry, his first feature-length film. It's an independent film. And last Thursday, I went to Berkeley and 
uh, I did this little part where I played a corrupt former governor, and it was a it was a debate, like a political debate, and um, I was like the bad guy, and uh, or the elitist power white dude, uh, which is funny, you know. Years ago, I was long haired love boy, and now people see me as corrupt politician kind of guy but it was really cool to do the thing and the filmmaker offered to as a trade because he couldn't pay me film my shows on saturday and uh what better place to film than my favorite club on the planet earth so i feel really good about it i just listened to the the audio from the shows and i i don't know i think i might be able to do something uh i think i might have a new hour if not Using this thing, I'm I'm happy that I'm 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 very closer to having an entire new hour. Yeah, it's exciting. I've been working my ass off lately, and I got a lot of great new jokes. So, feel great about it. So, um, these knowledge nuggets is helping you, huh, to create? Yeah, the knowledge nuggets I've been putting out every Friday on YouTube. Well, and as great as that gun thing was, uh, do you remember it took like 40 takes to get that one right? Yeah, and the light was going down, and I was thinking, oh my God, and I was yelling at you and saying, go deeper. You're putting pressure on me to make these knowledge nuggets. Yeah. You know, and then, I, and then I've been, it was great. Like in Sacramento and San Francisco, I've just been like writing out these set lists every night and really like, you know, I, I put jokes in blocks and then I've been moving the blocks around and then like cutting old material, seeing where new jokes would go in the flow. Uh, hey, and I want to thank all of the listeners all over the world who tweeted winter photos. We asked on our winter stories episode uh, for people to tweet us their winter shots. That was really great to see photos uh, around the world in different Modes of winter. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, thank you guys. It's pretty awesome. So today's episode is with Alex Hooper. Uh, I met him at the Comedy Store here in Los Angeles. He's a funny guy, but he's got a great history, a theater background. He's from Baltimore. And uh, he, he, he just got back from Argentina, which I was excited to talk to him about. But uh, he's a great performer. He's got a big heart. And he's someone I think you should know about. And that is why it is my pleasure to present to you now the one and only Alex Hooper. Hey, don't forget to check out Squarespace.com. Everybody needs a fabulous website. It's your first impression to the world for business, for delighting humanity with your art and music and whatever your website needs are. But you know what? Making a website can be a pain in the ass. And Squarespace can help you make a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of your skill level. There's no coding required. Uh, it has intuitive and easy to use tools. And you can get a free domain if you sign up for a year. And if you enter the code Tom Rhodes Radio at checkout, you'll get 10% off. How fantastic is that? You can delight humanity with a fantastic website and get 10% off. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Alex Hooper, ladies and gentlemen. Alex Hooper. Hello. Yay. Uh, 
I think I asked you this question when I met you. You're from Baltimore. How come you don't have that uh, horrific accent? I grew up in a theater family for the most part, very artistic. Um, so nobody, my, my grandparents who would have had it, who had it early on, they made it a point to not have it. So none of us ended up growing up with it. Like I wasn't, I was around a lot of people that had that warder, balmer, all the, you know, just saying everything very, it kind of sounds like you're getting hit over the head with a sledgehammer while you talk. Like there's just no enunciation. And I just, I made it a point to not have that. I was also, I took a lot of theater classes and stuff. But I, I, there was very, voice and speech was very, like just drilled into me. Like you can't talk like that. You can't talk like that. And so I just, I don't know. I never really acquired it. I never, I never had it for How any How about words. them O's, hon? Yeah. <laughs> hon, hon, hon. Let's go down the ocean, hon. Yeah, go down Delaware's way. Well, that's cool. Like, you grew up in a theater family. So, like, yeah. uh, when you wanted to ask for your allowance, did your father say, um, could you put on a hat and do that in character? Yeah, I would have to. I would have to. I would always have to do performances. Like, it, my family would have friends over for dinner, and they'd be like, Alex, come to your little thing. I was like, oh, all right. And then I would go down and do some weird comedy routine in my underwear or something like that just like look at me and they were just all like yeah so, so like, isn't he so great isn't he so great and i didn't realize at the time like is this humiliating i think this is humiliating right <laughs> obviously they're very proud of what i'm doing but i was just uh i was used for show which is fine i'm a show pony you know, your grandmother was an actress. She was in the... Crybaby. She's in tons of uh, commercials, a few movies. Mainly, though, just like theater legend. I mean, every theater in Baltimore owes a lot to her. Uh, she started... She was a professional actress for 71 years. 70, uh, 70, or 75, 75 years. 75 years lived off of being an actress, which is insane to me since she was 19 years old she went to new york tried that out for a year felt like she wasn't really good enough she wanted to raise a family didn't feel like new york was the place so she came back to baltimore was embraced and lived her entire life on stage she has plays uh written about her she did a one-woman show when she was 92 i mean which i don't without a script i don't even understand how that's possible like i mean and two years later she had insane dementia but right before that, she was doing 60 pages of just dialogue, uh, which is, I mean, it's unheard of uh, for someone that age to try to do something, to try to climb a mountain like that. And so then your, your parents also were in the theater world? My mom, my mom was. She went to uh, Boston University as a theater major, also felt like she wasn't good enough, so she dropped out and became a lawyer. Um, and then my, my dad never was. My dad, uh, he just loved Jewish women. He had three wives that were all Jewish. Uh, my mom was number two. And my dad was uh, is in construction. He does like commercial remodeling. But the rest of my, my family is so artistic and so open to being artists that we were never shunned in any way for wanting to do art. My brother was a sculptor for many years. Uh, my sister was the only one who never got into it. For some reason, she just didn't have that brain. But my brain didn't work well in conventional schooling. I hated doing tests. I hated all like just the processes of like, hey, you need to learn this, like, but I don't want to learn that. I want to learn what I want to learn. And obviously in a public school system, that's not a mindset that is embraced at all. That's They're like, no, you must learn this linear way that we are teaching you. And so I always just went to outside things and did things that were a little bit more unconventional. Well, it's a real rarity to be from a family that 
would encourage a life in show business? Yeah, I mean, paying theater, theater pay, pay, any parent that sends to their kid to theater school is an idiot. Uh, I'll, is is an idiot. I mean, it's, it's throwing away money. If I, I had, I got a big scholarship to college. Luckily, like I got, I got this thing called a presidential scholarship. I was a high school dropout. Didn't never took my SATs. And this stupid school in Pittsburgh, Point Park University, gave me $40,000 to go to their school for theater. Um, basically, because I talked my way into it. I just convinced them that I was the right person. They were like, tell me something. In my interview, they were like, tell me something that I wouldn't know by looking at this transcript. And I was like, okay, I'm a high school dropout. And they were like, really? And I was like, yep. They're like, that's what this school needs. They need people to know when they're done with high school and are ready to move on. I was like, uh, yeah, that's... That's where I was going with that. Uh, and so they embraced it. And I needed I needed those like few years of college because I was really, I didn't know what I wanted out of life and I was in a really weird place. But if I could go back and tell any parent that's about to send their theater school, send their kid to theater school, I would say whatever money you're about to pay for that, just send them to New York or Los Angeles and just let them do it. Because what you're gonna learn, like school is very, they. They want to teach you and everything, but you are learning from a bunch of people that really didn't make their dreams, as, live their dreams as far as they wanted to. And so there's always a little bit of, I'd say, like, they're, they're not as encouraging as they should be. Um, and so I think it's better if I had just started, if I knew, wow, you should just start doing comedy at 20 years old and just move. Because um, you started when you were 17, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't start to comedy till I was 24. And... And it was something I knew like I should be doing, but I just didn't know how to do it. And so I just didn't ever do it. And then I moved here to be an actor because I was already in SAG from going to school in Pittsburgh. And you got SAG from just going to school? Not from going to school. What happened is I was in a really stupid play. Uh, I was in a restoration comedy uh, and I had six lines. And I was a junior, and they, and then I got, uh, I got cast in this MTV pilot that was shooting in Pittsburgh. And the school said, if you do this pilot and can't do the play, you're expelled. And I had teachers fighting for me. They're like, why? Why? This is, this is what we want for our students. We want them to be in major productions. We want, we want a huge company like Viacom scooping them up and using them. And they expelled me because I took the pilot and it got picked up. And we shot for a couple weeks and then it never went anywhere. It was absolutely atrocious when I finally saw it. But that led me to being expelled. And I started working with casting directors in Pittsburgh. And uh, in 2008 or 2007, there was a huge film boom uh, in Pittsburgh because they signed a $70 million tax credit in Pennsylvania. So tons of films started going there to get this gritty look of Pittsburgh for their, for their films. And I got cast in two movies and had to join SAG. Um, so all my friends were doing this stupid play and they're like, how are you doing? I was like, oh great, I'm on, just working on movies. Like it was the best. It was, I felt so cool, uh, but I couldn't stay there because being a SAG actor in Pittsburgh, I could have been in a couple things every year as like a day player, but I really was ready to like make the move to try to do bigger things. Um, and so moving out here just made sense. And I didn't really know I wanted to do comedy. 
Um, but my friend, one of my best friends who still lives out here, we was like, was start, he started doing it. He was like, Hey, let me, let me show you how to, let me show you. Like I can be booked on something. I was like, okay. And I literally was like, he's like, do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, I think I'm ready to do it. And he was like, great. Cause I already booked you on a show in two weeks. And it was a bringer show, um, at this place called spotlight comedy club. Um, do you know, TK Madison, T he, run, he, he runs it. He's still around in some form. He just runs these bringer shows and I didn't know any better that that's not you know that's just how I started um and I did it once and I was like oh man like this is this is rad I had one of those rare like I had a really good first set like I wrote for two weeks had a really six minutes I was proud of and had such a great first set that I was like oh I got this and then of course I bombed for four months you know after that like I think it was just the support of your friends being there your first time which if I could go back, oh my God, I would never have my friends be there for the first few months. Like, I feel like I'm at this point now where my friends, um, in the beginning, your friends support you because they feel like they have to and they want to be encouraging and they want to, yeah, yeah, you're trying to do this comedy thing. That's cool. I'll come out to your shows. I'll spend 15 bucks and park and buy these drinks and, you know, overpriced and everything like that. And then they stop for like a few years. They're like, no, no, no. I, I, I sorry. I'm good. I'm good. Right. And now I feel like I'm getting into a place where I, I post shows on Facebook and people show up without telling me they're going to. And they just, they're, they want to see me again. Now that they've been away for a few years, they see that I'm having success. And they're like, now we want to see you again, which is really exciting to be past that few years of just like, ugh, like this is, you know, it's fun, obviously, but it's kind of, it's a weird, it's a weird thing of like, am I going to make it over the hump where this is what I'm going to do? You know, and I don't know, I don't know exactly when that happens. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, like what, how many years in is it like, okay, I'm committed to this where this is it. And I feel like, I feel like I'm there, but like somebody was saying like, how long do you do people bomb for it? Open mics before they realize it's just not for them. And I was like, well, some people do it their whole lives. Yeah. I see those people in the Valley all the time, <laughs> like they're just like 30 years in and they're still just doing the same bar show with no people there. And that's not what I want. It's just not obviously like, so I just, I just work as hard as I can get on as many shows as I can support and just be nice to everybody and hope that in the end people take notice. That's interesting. You started here. I think starting in LA would probably be the worst place to start in my mind, you know, you know because like you make the mistakes in you know, other towns or like, I started out in the South and then I went to New York and blah, blah, blah. And then expanded out and everything but with your theater family background and the fact that you know you, you have this acting foundation and you started comedy here now that explains like when i went to your um your the night that you put on in culture yeah, City, crave the, uh, the crave uh you did a character the whole yeah thing. so it was like very inventive so like a lot of comedians don't have the balls to try anything other than just being a straight monologist i'm gonna answer that in two points um First one is, I, I don't know anything else other than starting in LA, because this is where I started, so this is what I know. And I've been to a lot of other scenes and met tons of other comedians around the country. And you know, a lot of people are like, that's crazy, you shouldn't start in LA. Like People are gonna see you too early. Yeah, You're yeah. gonna make too many mistakes. And there is that, but in my mindset, after I'd been doing it, like it was the first year you have these like delusions of grandeur where you're like, oh, I'm so good at this. This is fine. I'm going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And then you start to realize, no, I'm not. I'm terrible. But the one thing about that is I would, I instantly saw 
the level that I was going to have to rise up to to be able to stand with these with these comedians. I would see these amazing headliners and famous people on the same shows as me and I would have to be like I need to hold my ground. I need to be good enough that people aren't going to say, "Well, why was he on this show with these guys? He shouldn't be here." So, whereas I feel like a lot of people they start in a smaller scene, you rise your way to the top, but then you're at the top. And I'm never gonna get to the top. Like there will always be people that are better than me. And there will always be people around me that I feel like I need to put on my best right now. And I need to work hard enough that I'm going to be as good as these people around me. So for that reason, I like I met someone in Baltimore last year. I was doing, I was headlining a show. They'd been doing comedy twice as long, and I was headlining the show, not them. And after I headlined, like it's mainly just because I'm from LA and I have a couple credits. And they were like, oh yeah, of course you can headline. But after the show, he's like, wow, like maybe I should move to LA. I was like, why do you say that? He's like, because I've been doing this twice as long as you, and you just went up and made that look easy. And it's because he's just been doing comedy in Baltimore for 10 years. So you reach a level, but then there's nowhere to go. And I feel like in LA, you can always look at people. You know, I went to the comedy store the other night and I watched back to back John Mulaney, Joe Rogan, Bill Burr. And I, and I look at myself and I'm like, holy shit, I, I suck. Like, and I don't suck. But when you watch that, you're like, I have so far to go. And I think that's the best feeling is to never feel like you're actually where you, where you should be, that there's always more work to be done. I like that. And uh, exactly what you're saying. Like last night I watched Louis C.K. Uh, and then last week Bill Burr popped in. And, uh, and and both of those guys were working on material. Yeah. So like they're great comedians. And, you know, Mark Maron's there all the time. Judd Apatow. All these different, uh, you know, Joey Diaz. Just beasts. Yeah. You, killing you, the place. But like you also see the mechanics and guys like working on the new bits and everything. I love so, that. Uh, I've got this great rejuvenated feeling of uh, just the excitement of being in the in, in the comedy world. It's so nice because obviously like you spent 10 years touring all over the world when you were the guy that people were coming to see. And when you're the guy, you're, you're working mostly with people that are not quite at your level yet. Yeah, yeah, you're working yeah, with yeah, people yeah, that yeah. are opening for yeah. you underneath you. And now you get to come back and be like, oh, these are the guys, the, these are the guys that... I came up with that I've been seeing and now they're just, they're so amazing and watching, getting to watch 99% of the world that goes to see comedy will never get to see Bill Burr work out a brand new bit. Yeah. They're just not going to get to see it. They'll get to see the finished product, which is great, but we get to see people work and the process that goes through and the way that they, you know, I love watching someone and two weeks later you see them do the same bit and it's completely morphed and changed into something that it wasn't before. And they found a way that you just worked on it, worked on it. And that's the one thing about doing comedy in LA where even though you're, you're, you know, with thousands of other comedians, it's always inspiring to see the work ethic and the level that you can achieve. I'm at the point now where I'm, I've been doing it almost seven years, which is, you know, pittance to what most people like to what will actually be a good career. But I see my friends that I started with start to get things, start to get late night sets and writing jobs. And what's more exciting than people, you know, starting to succeed like that makes it gives you so much hope that everything's going to be okay in a business where 
very few people ever find a point of like stasis. Yeah. Uh, I like the challenge of it, you know, and it's, um, the, uh, it's definitely, you know, the, the the sawdust on the floor workshop here, seeing guys working stuff out. Uh, how long have you been on a stand? Have you been stand up? Almost seven years. Okay. Yeah, it'll be seven years. I actually know. I actually know my first day. I actually, remember, very few people know the very first time. Oh, they I know did mine. It. Everybody. You, do yeah, you know? Yeah. Do most people know it? I talk to a lot of people. Like I don't know. It's not around like two thousand six. February fourth, nineteen eighty four. Wow. My anniversary coming soon. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Mine's uh. Mine's March 9th, two thousand nine. So mm-hmm. just almost almost seven years. Um. I want to, what were you talking about before about like doing characters at Crave? Um, when I started Crave, I was just, I just wanted to have a comedy show and throw a great party afterwards. And then I was doing it at this place that was very, uh, it was basically a Burning Man warehouse where all these burners would come to party and be creative when they're not at Burning Man and they're home away from home. And the guy who ran the place was saying like, what you're doing is a stand-up comedy show and a party. And you need to merge them into one event where people feel like it's all just one thing. It's not show and party, it's an event. And he was saying, you need to find a way to maybe theme it or do anything else that was going to make you stand apart from other shows in L.A. And that's when somewhere around the fourth or fifth show, I started actually writing scripts for them and playing characters um, instead of me just doing stand up. And a lot of people will come. My friends will come. They'll be like, oh, I wanted to see you do stand up. I was like, then come see me any other night of the week. When you come here, this is my creative outlet to show my writing, to show my acting, to just show something different that you're not going to see me do elsewhere. And it's fun for me because I get to come up with these characters and do these weird interstitials. And sometimes, I mean, I mean, you were there. I mean, sometimes I make it really weird in the middle of sets. (laughs) And I tell all the comedians, I'm like, look. This is not going to be a standard thing. I'm not going to give you an actual intro and say your credits. Just go go with it and don't question. Don't go up there and be like, what is this? This is all like, I don't know. Like, just go with it. And if you go with it, people have great sets there. And the people that fight it and are kind of like, this is, I don't know about all this. This is weird. Then they're the ones that were the audience is kind of like, oh, he's turning himself off. Like, just be open to anything. And it's just... It's so fun for me to get to do that um, and just be, just just do something completely off the wall. And I still don't know another show in LA that actually has scripted, that has a scripted show around the comedians. I think, I, I think we're the only people that do that, um, which also is great because I, I don't want, I don't want to do the same show as everybody else. I want, the reason my show's successful is because it's fun and it's different. And there's nothing else like it in L.A. And people have tried to do some sort of replication of it. But the fact is, is we find these spots to do our show. I mean, the place where you went, what a weird place, right? But it's inviting and it's comfortable. And there's a bunch of people in costumes and it doesn't really feel normal, which I like a lot. Back alley entrance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some comedians who I've wanted to have that I can't invite there because I feel like they're going to show up and be like fuck no and just get back in the Uber and and go home um, I've had many people tell me that they're uh, that they're like 
uh, Uber driver said, are you sure you want me to leave? Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you're in a weird back alley in Culver City in the industrial district, and it doesn't look like there should be anything in there. But then you walk in, and there's beautiful lighting and couches, and it's a uh, cool art everywhere. And it's almost, it's just, it's just like, it's like you're in some weird house that, like, but it's, I find it so comfortable, and the people... The people in the... I've never been to Burning Man, um, which a lot of people are like, how is that possible? Because I have terrible skin and the desert for a week scares the shit out of me. But I love the people that go there because they're so creative and warm. Like everyone I meet there, they don't want to shake my hand. They want to give me a hug. And what an incredible feeling to meet someone that's going to be so open to who you are as a person and embrace your differences and your creativity and they really inspire me to put on the best possible performance and show that I can. And I always wanna work hard for my audience and make sure that they're coming to something that is worth the money. Um, Cause most people, they scoff when they hear my show costs $15. I mean, comedians do, cause comedians are cheap. You know, I don't pay to go to shows. But when you come to it, they realize like there's so much value to this and it's original and it's worth it. You know, and I think that's the main thing is you have to, people are paying money to go see you. And, you know, I need, and that's important to give them the best possible product. That was a great show. I was on Ali Wong. Yeah. Down there. That's, that lineup, I was, oh man, I was so happy. Everyone did great. The Ali Wong, Nikki Glazer, Jared Logan, Harry Moros, Jack Knight. Those people are all incredible. And I mean, that was Ali Wong's, I think it was her first set after she had her baby, very early. I mean, one of the first ones, because she had her baby like three weeks before. Wow. So how exciting to see like brand new material coming out of this. Um, and the only reason she did it is because she lives in Culver City. She's like, I can get away for an hour. Can I just go up when I get there and leave? I was like, of course you can. Like she's been, uh, I've known her for years and she's one of those people where she's fierce, you know, watching her on stage is she's she's so unassuming can you imagine walking down the street you see you see this girl you would never ever think that like how powerful she's going to be on stage and i i love watching people just command a room when she whispers when she gets really quiet and then she yeah oh it's just it's inspiring yeah she was brilliant man all her stuff she did about giving birth was great and yeah, yeah you show up the our uber driver pulled up and it looks like you're gonna go watch uh, the cockfights or something there. It's uh, yeah. It's a it's a seedy, little dark uh, alley entrance. It's really it's it's really you know it's that's really it's the only place where a venue like that can exist. It needs to be in a place that's far enough away that it's kind of removed where you're not gonna have noise violations and things like that. You're not you know it needs to you need to be a little bit off the beaten path because. You don't, unless you you are told about that place, you can't find it anywhere. You're not gonna Google, where do I go after hours in LA and find that venue? Um, you have to be taken to it. And the first time I was taken to it, I was just floored. I was like, this is awesome. These people are partying till seven in the morning. The music's great. The people are great. It's, whereas most clubs, you feel like you're constantly being watched and there's no place to sit and they just want you to buy expensive drinks. This place is comfortable and they want you to be comfortable, which is unheard of in going out, in going out for an evening. I, I really, I've never found anything like it. And I've had a couple other venues that were not that 
that were very just like, yeah, yeah, you can come in here, but we're going to watch you the whole time and make sure that you're not going to be a fuck up. And, and those people just get weeded out of there. You can't go there and be a bad person because they won't let you stay. Somebody will find out and the community will find out and they will exile you immediately. If you're not, if you're not a nice person, you're out of there. So everyone I meet there is so happy to meet me, which is such a cool feeling. Like I'm just, it, 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 that's what it really keeps me going is these people want me to succeed and they wanna see what I come up with next and they want a new story and every crave is so different. People are like, why don't you do this every week? And the, I can't, like I don't, it takes me so long to prepare a show and to come up with these scripts and these characters and these ideas that I just, I can't. Like I just, I have too much other stuff going on. Um, and my idea is I wanna do it less. I wanna do, cause right now I do it five or six times a year. I wanna get to the point where it's once or twice a year, but it's huge, like a festival, like one giant thing where I can have thousands of people be there and have different stages and different things going on. I mean, that's the eventual goal of it. And then you could burn the place to the ground at the end. Exactly, just burn it all down, <laughs> just light everything on fire. But it's weird because my I'm heroes- I'm gonna call you the burning man of comedy, that's all. I like that, I like that, and not just for my skin. Um, I get that roast joke all the time. Oh, uh, really? Oh, yeah. They, well, because I've, I've, I've had, I've had oh, the worst case of eczema on the planet since I was born, basically. And doctors, doctors will be like, "Yeah, you're, um, you're as bad as it gets." And I'm like, "Well, I never do anything in moderation." So what do you I'm, get it on your arms? Everywhere. Everywhere. I, I, Twenty years ago, I got it on my arms. Yeah. Was, uh... Most people, it's pretty singular, like their elbows, their knees, stuff like that. For me, it's everywhere wow. and it's one of those things where i don't do anything in moderation if i would if like when it, when i would drink i wouldn't have one drink i would have 10 like when i wouldn't smoke one bowl i would smoke three like i would do everything to just the full-on just like if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it and my eczema is the same way if i'm gonna have it i don't want just a little bit of eczema i want it everywhere until it's almost crippling um but i'm on a medication right now that's doing really well so i mean People ask a lot of times, like, why don't you talk about this on stage? And I don't want people to think about it. Like some things, like obviously, like if you're a comedian that has one arm, you better address why real quick that you only have one arm. Otherwise people are just gonna think about it. But I feel like just looking at me, you don't immediately see it if I'm on stage, um, when it's under control anyway. Like it just looks kind of like I have a little sunburn. So I don't feel the need to talk about it because I feel like then people will just focus on it and stop listening to the points I really want to get across. So I don't ever talk about it. I don't bring it up. It's the only thing in my life that causes me any grief. I live an amazing uh, existence and it's the one thing that holds me back and I try to just not let it, you know? Interesting. Let's talk about, uh, is it scratchy? Cause it, Ugh. yeah, Ugh. it was terrible when the I, I worst. had, uh, the worst, when I had my sitcom 20 years ago, I was really stressed out and I broke out and, and I was constantly going, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then like my skin is telling a different story. Right. Yeah. You know? Your brain was, is like, no, it, you're it not. Was, it was terrible because you wanted to scratch it and it made it worse. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an autoimmune disease. So basically the way I describe it to people when they ask like how it occurs, like why can't I just get rid of it? It's basically like if one person was invading the United States and we sent the entire army after that person to try to stop them. It's like, and so that's what my, that's what my cells do. Like if one little thing breaks out, they send all my white blood cells to go take care of it, which inflames my skin, which causes rash and bumps and things like that. And it's just something that 
it's now like I've been in bad shape. Two years ago, I had to go to the hospital for it. Um, I went on. I tried to do some. I tried to always do different things to try to relieve it. And I went on a gluten and dairy free diet for six months, which at first I was floating. I was like, this feels amazing, and just the cha- the initial change makes it kind of go away, and it feels really good. And then my body figures out that I'm trying to fight it and is like, hey, you think you're clever, don't you, Alex? Boom, and it comes back worse than ever. And I had to go to, I went to my doctor and she was like, my dermatologist, she goes, I walked in, she goes, you need to go to the hospital right now. And I was like, no, I'm here to see you. She's like, I can't do anything about this. I was like, but you're the best dermatologist. She's like, you need to go to the hospital. I was like, okay. I was in the hospital like overnight and I was hospitalized a bunch of times when I was a kid for it. And it's now it's at the point, everyone, doctors always told me like growing up, you'll get rid of it. You'll get rid of it. You'll grow out of it. And by the time I was 17, they're like, I was like, I was like I'm still growing out of it. Right. And they're like, Oh no, no, it's here. And I was like, so, okay, this is my thing. Everyone has a thing. And so people are just like, that sucks. I'm like, well, you got something. Everyone's got something that they got to deal with. This is my thing. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's really the only thing that gets me down is when my skin's bad, I start to get a little depressed. I start to like not want to go out as much because I look at myself in the mirror and I feel like I look like shit and I don't want to answer questions about it. And I really try to not let it stop me in any way. But I do feel like sometimes I go on an audition for like a commercial. If my skin's breaking out a little bit like that, I do feel like I it affects jobs that I could be getting. Um, but other, But again, like, what are you going to do? You know, like you handle it as best as you can and you just accept it and just go on. I, I had a really bad problem with depression when I was growing up. I was terribly depressed, angry at the world. You were living in Baltimore. I was, yeah, I was living in Baltimore and I had a terrible case of eczema. I was fucked. I was so, that's actually the beginning of my bio is Alex Hooper's from Baltimore at Maryland. So he was effed from the start. Um, but I really, I was so angry at the world and one day I just woke up. I got out of this, I got out of this, like this, this terrible friendship with this girl that I was in love with for three years and we were best friends. We traveled all over the country together and we did all these things. And in the end I realized this girl's never going to love me. And she's, and she's awful to me. She's a terrible person. I shouldn't love her. Why am I wasting my energy on this? And all of a sudden I, I broke it off and like doors just opened. Then I got the MTV pilot, like two months after that happened. Then I got a brand new job. Then I started getting in movies. And while this girl's life felt a complete shit, I mean, it is still such shit. And uh, I hate to take, I hate to take any joy in that, but a little bit of me because of the th- because of the years of just like of just p- pure abuse she put me through. I do take a little bit of joy in the fact that. I'm just doing so much better than her. And I'm living the life that we always talked about of like going to Coachella and going to all these amazing concerts and having a million friends that all want to be around. Like I'm doing all that stuff. And she's still living in the same place where we went to college, working as a waitress at 30 years old. And there's something about it that when I woke up, like, and I really do feel like I woke up and I was like, I'm not going to kill myself. So why should I be walking around in this terrible mood all the time being a terrible person? Like when I'm, I'm a, I was always fun. And when I'm fun, people want to be around me and people like me. And I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, you know, they, so why, why am I not like, just like this all the time? And then I started being like that all the time. And all of a sudden, like just the light, the clouds parted, the sun came down. I looked up and I was like, 
This is how I'm going to live from now on. I don't want to, I don't want to be depressed anymore. And I really, people are like, you can't just turn it off. And part of me feels like you can. Part of me, like when people tell me like, I, I, you know, my depression won't let me go out and do this. I'm like, no, that's just you not letting you do that. I really do. Cause I was clinically depressed, like very much. So doctors would see me and they'd be like, oh, this kid is fucked. And now I'm fine. You know, I had years when my parents didn't know what to do with me. I was an awful person to be around. And now they just couldn't be more proud that I'm doing something that I love and they support what I do. They've seen me do shows. They've seen me headline. And all of a sudden, you know, they get to see their son on stage for 45 minutes, command a room. And they're like, oh shit, like he's, he's doing this. And they, they love it. My dad loves these stories of like me doing roast battle. And I told him the other, I met Christian Slater. He's like, what? Christian Slater, true romance. And I was like, true romance, dad. Like we, you know, we were talking like he, they love it. They love to hear about it. And I love telling them like it's, it feels so good because I honestly, for a few years, they were definitely like, well, fucked one of these up, you know? <laughs> so it feels really good to be able to just like come out on the other side of that. Cool, man. Let's talk about uh, the roast battle. I did see Christian Slater there the other night. Yeah. Uh, and True Romance is my favorite film of all time. It's I, the best. I didn't get to meet him, but I, yeah. uh, so, but I, and, and the roast battle was overflowing with people. Always. Um, but uh, I've judged it a couple times, mm -hmm. and uh, Roast Battle is such an exciting concept. I, yeah. Uh, it, I don't know why it's not already a television show somewhere. They've tried a few times. It's, gotten, it's just gotten screwed up a few times along the way where little things happen, and it, you know, it, it, gets, it gets heat, 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 and then it fizzles down because of something. Um, so, I you, so, you got, so let's explain the com concept to anyone who doesn't know. Roast Battle happens in the belly room, the small room in the top of the comedy store. And it's uh, two young comedians head-to-head uh, -head saying the shittiest possible things they can to each other. Yep. And it's all done out of love, which is even better. <laughs> it's, it's literally, it's the most negative thing. It's racist, thing, it's hateful. But it's the most positive environment <laughs> I've ever been in. It's the, it's the weirdest dichotomy. I, it was one of the things where I used to watch it and I'm like, I never want to do that. I don't want it. I don't, I don't want a part of that. I don't think I'd be good at it. And I did it one time. A friend asked me to do it. Uh, and we had this epic battle. It's still, they still call it one of the best of all time. We were, we were back and forth, back and forth. And the crowd loved us. And we walked off stage and we were like, that couldn't have gone any better. That was incredible. How thrilling. I was so terrified up there, but then I, I feel so alive right now. And then I just, I, people kept asking me to do it. And all of a sudden I was growing um, into the comedy store, which is a club that I, I wanted to be a part of for the past, like since I started going there, but I never had a way to really differentiate myself and make uh, make myself stand out as a comedian because everyone wants to be part of the comedy store you want to have your name on that wall you want to get that stage time and like that's what you want it's that that the most iconic club in the world um and i never i never thought of roast battle as a way in and all of a sudden jeff ross is on my side he's recommending for writing jobs people like jason reitman are putting me in the in the roast battle movie and and like the amount of exposure and, and just peer respect, just peer respect. The people that know me from Roast Battle give me so much 
respect at, that I can walk around that club with my head held high and not feel like I'm just some newbie trying to be a part of it, trying to like, how do I break my way in? Like, I feel like I belong there when I'm there. I don't feel, I, I, I don't feel like a stranger anymore. I feel like I can go in there and I'm confident. And when people see me, I'll have friends come see me at roast battle and they're like, it's crazy. Like, you know, people are just like, you ready champ? You ready for this? Um, it's like, and I, there's some feeling about it that it's a great way. I tell new comics all the time, like, it's a great way in. If you have this, if you have the strength for it, it's a great way in. It really, uh. I love it. It's like a boxing match with, yeah. um, you know, with verbal, uh, weapons. And, uh, Brian Moses is great hosting it. I love Amazing. it. Amazing. Let's roast. Yeah. Is the, you know, what's funny about it is like, some people are like, I don't want to hear mean things said about me. And I was like, you have to look at it as flattery. This person is going to spend weeks thinking about you. And researching Just everything about everything. You. <laughs> Watching your clips, listening to your podcast. They're going to spend all this time just thinking about you. And I thought I, I thought I knew everything about myself. I thought I knew every person I looked like, every comparison. The things I have been called in that show... It just opened my world to just how creative and funny people are. What's some of the worst things people have said to you? Oh, I mean, the somebody, the very first battle I had, somebody said I looked like Two-Face if you only had one face. Uh, that I looked like Pauly Shore fucked Mitzi Shore. Um, <laughs> that I looked like I have a face for Comedy Central because that shit's been keyed and peeled. Um, oh my god! That uh, I mean, Jason Reitman in the podcast a couple days ago said I looked like SpongeBob fucked Raggedy Ann. Uh, that I look like the moon in a silent movie. Uh, one of my absolute favorites because it's so abstract. Uh, George Perez said I look like the bouncer at a recycling center. Which is, I, how do you think that about some, like, where did that come from? What a weird thing. Carrot bottom. Um, I mean, <laughs> I could go on for days. Cause I mean, at this point I've done nine, nine battles. So I've heard 75 jokes probably about me, 80 jokes and probably 40 of them are just straight appearance based. I mean, I, I love it. I'm so excited to hear what somebody's going to call me next. Oh, my, in the last battle, somebody said, my parents are divorced, which doesn't explain why I look like a single mom. I mean, like, <laughs> things like that. Like, you have to laugh at that. You have to realize that you're a beautiful person, but you're a flawed person. You know, you're, everyone has their things. And if you just take it in and just accept it and laugh at it, you're so much better off. There's nothing worse than a roast battle where the people actually don't like each other. It's not comfortable for anybody. It's not fun to watch when yeah. they're really biting and they really are angry and mean to each other. That's not fun. The fun part is saying the worst thing you could ever say about somebody and then just laughing. And then just you both are laughing up there. Yeah, it's usually friends that challenge each other and then I like that they always hug afterwards. Gotta hug. Usually. It's one of the rules. You, know, you, gotta, yeah. you gotta hug. It's, it's a beautiful rule because it just shows like this. there's no hard feelings here. So what's some of the deepest research you've done to come up with a, a quip? 
Typically what I do, like I'll go online and I'll watch a few clips and I'll try to find any like their website or anything blogs they've written. But what I really like to do is I sit down with the person for an hour and just we just ask each other questions. What did your parents do? What uh, where'd you go to school? Uh, what are some of your hobbies? What kind of jobs have you had? Because people think, oh, you got to find out the dirt. You got to find out how many abortions they've had and how many people they've killed. It's like, no, you don't. Because nobody actually wants to hear that stuff. Whenever you do a joke that's too deep, that's a little too personal, the audience doesn't gets uncomfortable. But if you just, all you need is, oh, this guy's parents were both mechanics. Uh, you can write a joke about that. Ah, oh, this guy's dad's a teacher. You can write a joke about that. Because anything starts a joke. All you need is here's a setup and here's the punchline. Here's a setup, here's the punchline. So you don't need to know bad things. You just need to know like, oh, this person, they, you know, they love watching sci-fi movies. Great, I'll write a joke about that. And for a typical roast battle, you need about 12 jokes and I'll usually write an average of 50 and hope that 12 are good enough to make the cut. And what are some of the best lines you've come up with? Um, I really, I really like, um, <laughs> this one's so just, it's so silly, but uh, I said, uh, this guy, Brendan Lynch, I said, Brendan's dad is a popular professor at UC Santa Cruz. His class is called How to Deal with My Faggot Son, <laughs> um, which, you know, the thing about roast battle, I would never use the word faggot on stage. Right. I would never say it. I, um, but at roast battle, I feel like this is my one outlet to like say these things. I said the N word once, Ooh. which I still regret to this day because blogs were written about it. There used to be this rule for roast battle that if two white guys battled, you were each allowed to drop the N word once. And this guy used it against me. And I had a joke in my back pocket ready in case he used it. And I said it. And I'm not going to say what I said because it's the worst thing I've ever even thought. And I said it out loud in front of 100 people. And suddenly a blog was written. And D.L. Hughley got involved saying, how could this show be, be, exist where these white people are dropping the N-word against each other? And it just got... People... People were like, oh, yeah, you're the, the N-word, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I'm not that guy. Don't call me that. The, they said... I. I'm not going to say what I said. I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> Part of me was about, just repeat it. No. Um, but they was, I started, people started calling me out for it. And I was suddenly like, this was a huge mistake. Like, I should never have said this. But at the time, I, I was given the liberty to, and I felt right about it at the time. So I don't regret it so much. But looking back, I probably wouldn't have done it. Like, but I didn't expect all that aftermath. And everyone stood by me. Brian Moses stood behind me at the time. Real Battle was still involved. He stood behind me. Everyone at Jeff Ross stood behind me. Everyone was like, it's okay. You like, you took a, you took a freedom and you did it. It's okay. But I still felt terrible about it. You know, I just, it's not, I don't like those words. I don't, I didn't start comedy to be offensive. I'm a very nice person. I love, I love the people around me and I want people to feel empowered when they're around me. I try to make everyone in my life feel like a beautiful person. So to have to rip somebody down, that's my one outlet where I don't want to be mean about anything. I just want to come up with a joke and th that I want you to laugh at. And so there was, there's been a couple times where I'm like, ugh, why, why, why? But you know, you say it, it's done. I mean, some comedians make a career out of courting controversy, you know? Um, yeah, totally. I, I mean, Stanhope's one of my favorites, and he's one of those people that's like, you can say anything you want. You can say anything you want. Just stand by it, and 
it's if, if the people don't like it, then they won't come see you anymore. And I love watching Stanhope and people like that. Um, but I feel like you have to get to a level before you can really say anything you want. You have to earn the respect of your fans. People need to believe in you and go on the ride with you and, and be that even if they don't agree with what you're saying, they'll listen to you say it and they'll at least give you the opportunity because they want to hear what you thought, you know? But I, I don't think I've been, I don't think I've earned the stripes yet to be able to say anything. And sometimes I come up with a bit that I feel like is so controversial or so um, progressive that I'm not ready as a comedian to do it yet. I don't know. If that, I mean, if I'm sure a lot of people feel that, but I mean, obviously, like, like some, like you, do you feel like you can do whatever you want up there? Uh, I mean, there's certain things I wouldn't want to do. You know, like um, you know, I don't do rape jokes, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, like. Some comedians were making Paris uh, attack jokes, sure. you know, and things like that. There's just certain things that um, bother me yeah. that, that I don't find humor in. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'm kind of like you, that I, I'm a nice guy. I want people to laugh. I mean, I like being edgy and sure. I, I like... You got to um, push. You got to push the yeah, envelope. Um, you know, I'm not up there doing animal balloons and stuff, but, uh, you know... I mean, I like I like fucked up jokes for sure. myself to a certain degree. Yeah, I I the thing is I can appreciate a really mm-hmm. really sick joke. I just don't want to be the one that tells it. Some people <laughs> are touching about a lot of things. Like I used to do a, a suicide joke, and then some woman wrote me a letter, an email from Austin, uh, and she was with some suicide prevention group or whatever, and. Um, and, and wanted me to know that they didn't care for that joke. She had heard it on, like, XM Sirius. And uh, I wrote the lady back and said, you know, you, uh, the, it was actually an anti-suicide joke. Right. She, she took it wrong. And that I think certain things, like, my sister died of cancer, so I don't find, like, uh, breast cancer jokes funny, because my sister died from it. It's just like, what affects you? I mean, everyone, there's certain things that, the way it's touched your life, you might not find humor in. I have, a, I have a joke that is very, very anti-rape, but I have to say the word rape to say the joke. Um, it's about me um, taking GHB at a party that somebody gave me, and I was like, this is a date rape drug, right? This, and it, the joke goes into, like, why is this girl trying to give me date rape drugs? Like, oh, my gosh. And then I took it and loved it, and I was like, why don't date rapists just take this drug themselves and open their mind they would be like, I don't ever want to rape anybody. But people hear the word rape and they stop listening to the point that I'm trying to make and they instantly shut it down. A lot, you know, a lot of audiences will instantly shut that joke down. And I have to be very careful because I actually love doing the joke because I feel like it it tells a lot about me and it tells a lot about my, my point of view. But in a lot of rooms, people are automatically just, no. Nope, you can't, I don't want to hear the word. And if you listen to, it's so, it's actually empowering to women. It's putting the, it's putting the ball back in their court. And some people though, they just, as soon as you go into something, they're like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it, which I get. I mean, I do understand that. Um, But that's just, you know, knowing when to do what bit, you know? Mm -hmm. So... 
So uh, I already liked you uh, as a person, as a comedian, and then you went and uh, you hit a, a, a higher level with me on my appreciation for you. Uh, you went to Argentina. Yes, I did. It so was the Tell best. me about your trip to Buenos Aires. My, my girlfriend and I have never traveled internationally together. We've been together a very long time. We've been together probably about eight years. We've known each other for 11 years. We, we have a very long history. It's one of those things where we, we found such a kinship very early on that it's kind of a lot of people will be like, well, didn't you want to go out and explore more options? And I was like, no, I'd explored a few options and I found someone that I couldn't get along with better, so why would I leave? And we've traveled some places together, but never anywhere like really cool. And she's been to Europe a few times, I've been to Europe once, we were looking into like where we could go, and I know just enough Spanish to get by, that I said like, let's go to Argentina. Let's, and she's like, why Argentina? I was like, I don't know, because why not? Because it seems like a cool place. And going there and like she's so good about I'm a terrible planner I'm I'm never like oh yeah let's get this 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 done let's get this itinerary done but she's so good about that stuff I'm the spontaneous one she enjoys spontaneity but only when it's planned <laughs> so I have to be the one that's like let's do whatever but she's so good about it she found us this great apartment in the most popular neighborhood where all the young people are and we were staying in in Palermo and there was just um we, we just wanted to just go and try all the local food, go to the clubs, go just do all these Argentinian things that you have to do. And I thought, just this, I just loved walking around the city every day. Um, the city, I mean, if you've never been to Buenos Aires, obviously you have, it's so green. There's parks. You can literally travel, traverse the entire city and never leave a park because there's just so many. They don't cut down their trees, which is crazy for us. Yeah, and I like the, the what. There's Palermo Soho. There's Hollywood Soho. There's like four or five different Soho's. Yeah, and those uh, they're like tree-lined boulevards everywhere. Yeah, it's really a cool. It's it, funny to hear that. Oh yeah, those are like the cool developing areas because like. Yeah. Uh, they seem like the coolest parts of the city to me. Yeah, definitely. And we traveled all around the city. We went to all the street markets in San Telmo, and we went to the cemetery in Recoleta, which, I mean, I, I think, it's, you know, part of me thinks it's so funny when people spend, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars on, like, a burial site for a person. But you walk through, and you're like, I, I, I wouldn't mind having real there estate like this art. when I'm There's dead. There's statues. The, um, the Père Lachaise in, in Paris is the only cemetery I can think that um, is on par with that. That just the there's like family mausoleums yeah. that are just works of art. Yeah, I it, would like to be buried in in Recoleta yeah. Cemetery, and um, it's really expensive. Oh, and I'm sure. It, and it, it's pretty full. So I was thinking like maybe I could buy like a little um, kind of two foot wide space and one foot wide, and then they could bury me bury me standing yeah. up. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of uh, I'm a stand up. It might be cheaper. That's right. Stand up. Got to stand up. I feel like I, I didn't realize when I was there that until like I was in there for about a half an hour that these tombs went way down into the ground. And that's where actually most of the coffins were is that they're not just a tomb that's actually 12 feet tall like it looks like. These things go 50 feet into the ground. There's staircases leading all down there. And... It's, it feels weird to like be in a cemetery be like, ooh, take a picture in front of this one. Ooh, yeah. like, but... It's it's just such an iconic place. And we went there, we went there in the morning. We were in a club all night. We went to this um really like 
kind of crazy uh, themed club and we were dancing all night and we were, we didn't sleep and we went back to our apartment and we drank some coffee and we sat on our balcony we're feeling jazzed up we're like let's walk over to the cemetery let's do it let's walk over and we were so like dead tired by the time we got there and instantly woken up when we walked through those gates um it felt it, there's something about you realize like the amount of history and it makes you think about like these aren't just names on on marble, you know. This these are people's lives that obviously did amazing things, and that people wanted to capture for all time to put them in there. And I love that they, you know. And then and then you know, right next door, there's like you know a huge fancy hotel and you know beautiful cafes and things like that, just surrounding this real estate that would be so prime, and they're using it right in the center of the city just to house the dead. It's one of the best tourist attractions in Buenos Aires. I stayed in yeah. a hotel right next to it uh, the last time I went. And there's all these, like you said, great cafes. And, yeah. you know, I was having breakfast outdoors uh, next to a cemetery. It's so it's so crazy. When I, we, we went to, there was a money exchange place over there, the, the Cuevas, because you kind of, you do it on the blue market down there. And because the regular exchange rate is like, yeah, nine and a half to one, about nine and a half pesos to the dollar. But you go on the blue market, they'll give you like 15 to the dollar. And so we would go exchange like 800 bucks and they would give us back 15,000 pesos, which is, you, it's like, you feel like, oh man, like you holding these giant stacks of money and you just feel so cool. And it's not that much money. My friend Jack Bulwer did that the last time he went and he traded it. How do you find the people in the black market to change it? We we just Googled it and we found one that had enough reviews that was like, this is, because a lot of them people were like, you're going to get ripped off. Don't do it. That's don't what do I would it. Think. I'd be terrified to try that. Yeah, you're, you're going to get or fakes. Like they're going to, you know, somebody sees you walking out of that place. The they place, know what you just did. Yeah. The place we went had a cop standing outside of it. Because they just, they, they really, and they were, when we went in there the first time, there was no one in there. When we went in there the second time, there's a line of 30 people waiting to do this. And it's very well known. It had great reviews online of like, this place will not fuck you. And I a police officer standing outside to make sure it doesn't get robbed. And it's technically not even legal, but it's so accepted that, you know, an officer that's, you know, in, employed by the city is standing outside of it to protect it. So, because they just want the the Argentinian economy has collapsed twice in the last yeah. twenty years. It's so shit that they want those American dollars. We brought them those fresh blue Benjamins, and they were just you know that's what they want. That's how they try. They're trying to rebuild, and so even though it's technically illegal, the government's like, yeah, but we yeah, but it's it's cool. It's cool. So we it's better than it. just changing it from a money changer. You get you get fifty percent more. Than just then if you actually go through an actual like currency exchange. What's the exchange rate now like? Because I went there last time it was four to one. It must be like it six was or seven. Ten. I think no it was nine shit. and a half or ten, and we were getting fifteen. Wow, no so, shit. Fifteen to one. I mean, and that's the thing is like most if you're buying obviously like I'm looking down there at clothing and stuff like that. If you're trying to buy brand name, they're gonna charge you way more because of the inflation. But if you're just buying local things. Everything is so cheap. You know, you get a filet mignon down there. I mean, you know, it's like you pay $15 for this 
pound of beautiful steak. The best that, steak you ever had in your life. That if you bought went to a restaurant here, you'd be charged ninety dollars for that. Yeah. You know, and and down there, I'm like, yeah, just give me two. Like we were ordering, we would order such an insane amount of food that the waiters kept asking, "Are you sure?" They'd be like, <laughs> uh, I'd, be, they'd be, "I'd be like, es mucho." See, they'd be like, "Es muy mucho." I'd be like, eh, "Whatever, okay." Like so that's fine. Like we'll take it home. Um. But yeah, it was like the greatest bottle of wine uh, for like five dollars. Yeah. It was incredible. Like white tablecloth, really fancy restaurants in Buenos Aires. Like he's at like 10, 15 bucks for the greatest steak you've ever it's, had. It's amazing. And I mean, it's so, it's so nice because I do not have the luxury here in Los Angeles. I don't, when I go to a restaurant, I'm looking at what I'm ordering. I'm like, look at the prices, be careful. Like don't go over a certain length. And in Buenos Aires, I didn't, I was like, whatever, who cares? Give me the most expensive thing, it's fine. And I'd walk out having spent dinner for two for like 60 bucks, like with wine, with with wonderful steak and appetizers and everything. And just to be able to like live like a king for a week was so nice. And then we went to Iguazu, which have you been to the waterfall? I've never have, no. Oh my gosh. I wish I've I mean, had it going yet. Yeah. That's it. I've been that's, there, uh, and then, uh, Mar del Plata, and then I have a family that lives in, um, oh, Jesus, it's uh, La Plata. Oh, okay. There, where's, I don't know where that is. La Plata is like 15 miles away from Buenos Aires. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's it's a university town. It's the Ciudad de Diagonales. Oh, okay. The city of diagonals. The city of diagonals? Is it because of streets? All the streets are designed like diagonals oh crazy that's awesome yeah that's really cool i really we're not my girlfriend and i are not nature people we're city people through and through i've always lived in cities my brother is the complete opposite he worked in denali national park for four years he works on national parks now like that's what he he just loves being in the center of nature surrounded by nobody and everything. I'm the exact opposite. I need to be immersed in culture and people, and my job demands that I'm immersed in culture and people. Um, and so I wanted to do at least one thing where I was like, okay, we need to like go to like some amazing like thing. And Iguazu just came up. It's a two-hour flight from Buenos Aires, and it's just this, the most amazing water, one of the most amazing waterfalls in the world. And just standing by it and hiking around it just gives you, you know, it gives you that sense of just how small and unimportant you actually are in the grand scheme of things and how it just how just how beautiful the world is because it's so untouched. And the first day we went in there, we got there around 3 p.m. So the park was very crowded. I mean, obviously you're just walking by like in almost a line of people. But the next morning we went in right when it opened and we were the only people in there and hiking around it with nobody was just incredible. It was so, so cool. And I'm so happy that we went, because I talked to someone else who went to Buenos Aires and they were like, we loved Buenos Aires. Our one regret was not going to Iguazu or Patagonia. And I was like, we need to, we don't have time to do both, but we need to do one of these things. Yeah. And we just felt like Patagonia was such a huge thing, like a huge obstacle to tackle because it's just, it's so big that we felt like if we can just go to Iguazu and go to the waterfalls, we'll feel like, we really completed our trip that we weren't just in Buenos Aires, but then we did that kind of on the last, the, the, the second to last day. So then we could come back and have one last great day in Buenos Aires after we were like just immersed in nature. Nice. And I'm so happy I chose Argentina. Cause you know what I like about it is everybody, 
if you go to if you're like I'm going to Europe, everyone's like, oh cool, and and we're like I'm going to Argentina. We go why? And I'm like, because I want to. And they were like, oh okay. And I want to go to more places where people ask why I'm going there, not just like they don't just accept, you know, <laughs> like there's a lot of places in the world that is, are just not conventional to travel to. So people just want there must be a reason, right? No, because I want to see different parts of the world. I did a show down there. I found I found did you do a show. Down I found there? an English speaking comedy show that had just started three weeks before I went there, I quickly like Google. I told I told my girlfriend, I was like, look, I'm not gonna do any comedy down there. It's not a comedy trip. And then I found this, I Googled, I was like, eh, comedy shows. But I was always found one and I told her, and at first she was kind of like, Alex, come on. And then she, and then I was like, I'm really sorry. I you know, I know, but I, I'm gonna be in Argentina. I've never performed comedy outside the country. Like there's an English speaking comedy show. And then she started to really be like happy about it and like, no. You should do that. That's really cool. And it turned out to be one of the best nights we had there because we we found people that were our age that were like-minded that spoke English. And we were able to actually sit down and have conversation for a couple hours because most of the people in Argentina don't speak English. Like I have a, yeah. I have a skewed view because I work at a th I work at Universal Studios and all the people I meet from Argentina speak enough English to get by or I can speak enough Spanish to get by. But down there I was struggling really with my Spanish because I couldn't find anyone that would speak English. And then that one night we were just able to talk like ourselves for a couple hours. And my girlfriend was like, I'm really happy you did that show. And I was like, I'm really happy I did just, just to say I did it. You know, it's one of those, some things you do just to a say you did it. the map. Yeah, exactly. You just, there, I, you know, was it a great show? It was fine. It was cool. Um, it wasn't the best, but I did it. And it felt cool to meet these Argentinian comedians that like, you know, they were like, you live in LA, you, you do this show and this show. And I was like, yeah, how do you even know about that stuff? They're like, because like we listen to podcasts, we study these things. And they were like blown away that I'm like, oh yeah, I can walk to the comedy store in 20 minutes. Like, what? Like to them, I don't even think about that stuff. Like I don't realize, I take it for granted sometimes where I live, they're 10,000 miles away. So they watch these sets, they listen to these stories and podcasts, and they're never going to, that's as close as they'll ever get. And I live two minutes from there, you know, and I try not to I try take anything for granted. And I tell myself all the time that I'm lucky that my life is this and that I've chosen this path and that I've worked hard enough to get here. But sometimes you forget until you go to a place like that and realize like, oh, yeah. That's fucking cool. Like that, I live yeah. within that. Like uh, me traveling the world. Uh, one thing that did stand out in my mind, you know, make I, I got friends, comedian friends, all over the world. Yeah, and so many of them, like, yeah, man. Next year, I want to take a trip to L.A. and I want to try and get on here and there and there and when and like I'm thinking to myself, man, that's an easy luxury that I have that I can do what these people are dreaming of. Yeah, we get we get to perform. <laughs> at some of the best and most famous clubs in the world on a constant basis. And I, you know, I feel, I feel that little, I feel a little Twitter inside me when I walk into the comedy store grounds. There's something about walking into that building that you feel like something inside my stomach churns a little bit when I go in there, this feeling of excitement that I, I'm about to perform at a special place. Um, but it's still, I do it three times a week. I'm there a few times a week. So I don't think about it as much of just how special it is. But when people are like, you know, 
you know, oh man, I listened to the Roast Battle podcast. They, they, these people in Argentina listened to my roast battles through podcasts. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, you've heard me roast battle? Like, you live in Buenos Aires. They're like, we've heard it. It's so cool that you get to do that. Yeah. And I'm suddenly like, oh yeah. It is so cool that I get to do it. Sometimes somebody else has to tell you that your life is cool to really be like, oh yeah, I guess it is. You'll have to give me that information. I would love to do a set in Buenos Aires. I, there's a, a Spanish-speaking club, the La Terraza. Yeah, I remember uh, watching your video and you went there. Yeah, and, and, and I met all these Argentinian comedians, but uh, it was all Spanish, so I didn't get to go on. Was it? You know? But you watched the show, right? I watched them, yeah, and I made I friends mean, with them and hung out with them. There's a, a great group of... I've always wanted to watch, like... A stand up in another country that I didn't understand the language because I feel like like I've watched clips of like Japanese stand up comedians and I'm like what are, I I just wonder what are you talking about these people yeah. are eating it up they're loving it but you're just standing up there talking but what are you actually discussing right now like what is you what are you what's so funny what are you talking about um, and it's probably nothing. It's probably a weird shopping trip that they what had. What you imagine might be better. Yeah, I, you know, like when I lived in Holland, I would watch these Dutch comedians and uh, I've seen, you know, comedians in France or Germany. And it's like you look at it differently as a comedian because then you're like watching their body movements mm -hmm. and, you know, how, how theatrical they're getting. Yeah. So uh, what... Uh, what stood out the most for you for Buenos Aires? Uh, did you so were the comedians you met were they um, were they expats living there or one of them was and the other two there was only four comedians. There were Argentinians show. doing it in English. Yeah, two of them were Argentinians doing it in English, and one of them I was talking to. He's like, I mainly work in Spanish, but I've learned to do comedy in English, and it was definitely like he had it down, but it was a little bit rough because his Spanish was still stronger than his English. Um, but it was really cool to be able to watch a you know, bilingual comedian work in in English when I know he primarily works in Spanish. Um, the two, the one of the guys that was running the show, it was called Expat Comedy, um, and there was only about there's probably about thirty people. It was a tiny little upstairs attic of a club uh, above a restaurant, um, probably, and it was just. Um, you know, people were there from mostly England, a few Americans, a couple Germans, but everyone there spoke English, which made it easier, obviously, because I, I couldn't have done it if it was in Spanish. Um, but it was uh, it was cool to watch them like try to relate to people. You know, international crowds is always a mixed bag because you never know if this idiom is going to work for these people as it does for these people. And so having to talk about, I had to like look at my material and be like, what is so universal that it doesn't matter what it, no, like no reference, take references out, all that stuff. Just talk about things that everybody will relate to. And it was a good challenge because I did, I closed the show, I did uh, about 20 minutes and I had to really make sure that this is stuff that they're going to understand that is not just like, oh yeah, Americans get it, you know? So I did very much like family material, uh, a lot of material about my dogs and stuff like that. Cause everyone can get that stuff. Um, I felt like, I felt like one of those like 30 year comedians who's like, oh, I just talk about my family and my dogs, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, but it worked. I mean, they were intrigued, you know, and, uh, they talked, a lot of people talked to me after the show and it was really it just felt cool. It just felt really neat to just do something like that in a completely foreign place. That's what I based most of my life on. I know. That I, that's I. I mean, <laughs> I. I think. I think. I think your life is is so enviable that you've traveled everywhere and done and done a job 
all over the world that most people will only get to do in very select places. Our job as comedians is to travel, but most people, they don't, they don't open their um, eyes to their arms to the world. They just go, yeah, well, we'll go to Florida. Then I'll go to Montana. Then I'll go right. to New York. And you, you're like, no, I'll go to China and tell jokes there. And, I'll, you know, that's, I mean, traveling the world is, is what everyone should do. And I read a statistic recently that only 35% of Americans have a passport. Yeah. And that's not... The rest of the world... That's gone up. It used to be 28%. Gee, the rest of the world travels. The rest of the world leaves. And I understand that America's a huge place, so it's easier to stay in the country. And that, um, you know, it, there's a big, obviously, just financial gap that a lot of people can't travel the world. But, like, somebody asked me, they were, one of my coworkers was like, was like, how's Argentina? They're like, great. Was, and they were like, are you rich? I was like, what are you talking about? I'm working right next to you. Or you, would, you know I'm not rich. Like, but how'd you go to Argentina? I was like... Because I saved enough money because I wanted to. Because I didn't spend my money on stupid shit like video games and yeah. whiskey. Like I was like, I'm going to stop buying these, stop buying things and buy experiences. I've always, I've always been a person that buys concert tickets over movies and things like I want, I want live things all the time to be happening to me. I'm out in the world every night. I have serious FOMO. I've, if I'm not out in the world doing something and then I look on Facebook and I see that this happened down the street from me, I pull my hair out going, why wasn't I there? And it's, it's fine that I wasn't there, but I'd rather be there. I want to see my favorite band when, they, when, they, when they're at a festival or in LA. I want to see my favorite comedians. I want to go places that are going to challenge my thoughts and my way, point of view to the point where I realize that I'm just this small little particle in an expansive world and I just need to do my part to give whatever wisdom that I'm learning and whatever joy I can bring to other people that's what I want because I spent years taking and taking and being negative and being a piece of shit person and I want to erase all of that and only spread happiness everywhere I go. I like that. What is the best advice you've ever been given as a comedian? <sighs> um, wow. Because uh, I've been given a lot. I think just to stop, stop trying to be what you think other people want you to be like, cause when you're first few years, when you're like, I still feel like I'm very much finding my voice as a comedian and who I want to be. But in your first few years, you imitate, you watch the people that you love and you try to talk like them. You try to write jokes like them. And that's fine. You have to do that. When you start playing in a band, you, you play your favorite band songs. You learn to play them. Cause that's how you're going to learn to be original. And eventually you have to get to a point when the fear is gone and you can truly be yourself up there and talk about the things that are actually important to you. And everything I talk about on stage, even though I make, I hyperbolize and I make silly jokes, everything that I talk about is very important to me. And I feel like I'm still trying to find what I'm gonna be. I think the most exciting thing for someone who's in my place, who's been doing it almost seven years, is I think about all the time, like if I'm here after seven, where am I gonna be after 10? after 12, after 15, how much will I have grown? How comfortable will I be? And I can't wait till I can, like I watched um, I watched Jeff Garland the other night at the comedy store and he was talking about how he doesn't have, people want material. He's like, I don't have material. I sure I have some material, but I just go up there and I know that I'm funny and I just start talking. And whenever it comes out, that's what I'm gonna do for 20 minutes, whatever I wanna talk about. And watching that as someone like me who is so material based and so not afraid to go off the beaten path and improv, 
but I really like, I try to like stick to like, I wrote these jokes and I want you to hear them. I watch a guy like that and it's inspiring to be able to watch the freedom of like, I don't care what happens up here. I'm living in it. I'm just living in the moment and whatever happens, that's what I, that's what I want. And I want to get to that point and I will get to that point when I can just go up there and just completely be myself and not put on any airs and just just live and breathe and feel and experience every moment that I have up there. Cause sometimes you get after a set, you walk off and you like forget. You're like, what happened up there? Like, and you're like, you were just in like, your brain was moving or whatever, but you weren't, I was, you know, you, you recite, but I didn't really feel like I was alive up there. I felt like I went into just like, just autopilot and went. And I want to get to the point when I can fully be myself and people will come to see me because they want to just hear what I have to say because I have an interesting perspective. I like it. In closing, is there any words of wisdom or advice that you have for the people of the earth? Be happy, spread happiness everywhere you go. Life is like, it is not worth being on this planet to be a miserable fuck. It is just not. It's like people that just I that spread negativity. Over the past few years, I've met the most amazing people and made the best friends I could ever ask for that that love what I do and 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 I love what they do and who they are. And they just they make me such a well-rounded person and they make me feel like I'm beautiful when I spent years feeling like I was an ugly, terrible human that just had nothing to contribute. And I've realized that I'm not and that everyone has something to give and that only by sharing and spreading joy and happiness, it's, it's I sound like a Scientologist right now. Uh, yeah, like, I like it. <laughs> Where do like, I sign? Yeah, right? I want to fly the spaceship with you. I do too. I just, that's what I, I just... I just, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to live to the fullest extent that I can and be as happy as I can every day and do every experience and just, and just embrace it and make myself into a complete human being. Cause I think that's all we can do. I think that's all we can do. Beautiful. Alex, uh, I'm happy to know you. You too, uh, Tom. In spite of your eczema, you're a very beautiful man. Thank you very much. And you're a beautiful man, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> And long may you run, brother. Uh, I always end every uh, podcast with uh, a song. Uh, so can you name um, the, the, who did this song? She said, the prettiest place on earth was Baltimore at night. No. Never who heard is, that song? Who is that? Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers. It's my favorite Baltimore song. <laughs> I need to listen to that I'm immediately. Going to end this episode with that song. Please do. I love that song. I can't wait. All right, Alex. Thanks for uh, for being my friend. Thank you, Tom. Long may you run, brother.